0: You're listening to episode three hundred and ninety one of the UAV digest. I'm Max Flight. And I'm David Vanderhoof. Max, it's the last one of twenty twenty one. That's right. Our last episode for the year will I guess, right? We're off next week. Aren't we off next We're week? We're off next week. Yep.
1: Okay. We're, usually we take off the week between Christmas and New Year's. And then we'll be back the following week with all new stuff in in a new year. That's right. I, I'm, I'm sitting here cozied up against the fire with my pup next to me looking to record a wonderful Christmas show um, for <laughs> our listeners. Probably mentioning nothing beyond the introduction on Christmas because there's a lot of news. Yes, there is. So, well, let's get started. Let's talk about uh, D-Drone gets an additional funding, creating 3D models of endangered heritage sites hitting a dummy in the head with a drone ah the physics of kinetic energy italian heavy lift multi-rotors the mq-25 refueling drone gets practice on taxiing on an aircraft carrier the next reaper the faa grant for uas training and the navy harassed by drone swarms so i think we should get started max david let's get started Well, our first story comes from BusinessWire.com. D-Drone secures $30.5 million Series C to protect airspace against unauthorized drones. Axion invested
0: $30.5 million in D-Drone. The financing was led by Axion. Uh, there were other uh, previous investors also involved in this, but uh, D-Drone has been doing pretty well. Apparently, they say they've sold over a 1,000 sensors in the past year. Of course, these are the ones that detect, identify, and locate drones. And uh, I guess currently they do that for over 200 different types of drones.
1: Yeah, and quite the portfolio of customers. 65 critical infrastructures, 50 correctional facilities, 20 airports, 10 Fortune 500 companies, and four of the seven G7 nations,
0: and a partridge in a pear tree. (laughs) Now, of course, D-Drone offers what they call airspace security as a service, and they can host that either uh, on-premise, if you like, or they can do that in the cloud. And they do say they're a complete
1: aerospace security solution. So modern security requires a layered approach that keeps up with the evolution of drone technology. Sensors connect to our D-drone tracker software, which detects, classifies, and protects against drone threats, including localizing the drone. Passive and active countermeasures can be triggered, tailoring the defense mechanism to the severity of the threat. Um, quite a, quite a mouthful there, but it sounds like they're doing a really good job. And it almost sounds like, Max, in the great race between anti-drone and drone technology, it sounds like the anti-drone technology is catching up and maybe getting it ahead of the game.
0: It does. It does. It, of course, it depends on where you are because detection is one thing. And in some places, the type of detection you use is not permissible. Countermeasures are, you know, uh, defeating the drone is uh, problematic in many jurisdictions, depending on, you know, where you live and and who's doing the uh, drone detecting. So uh, it's it's definitely an evolving space, but uh, D-Drone seems to be playing a major part in that market. So...
1: We'll move on to capturing coastal heritage before it's lost. And this is from Fizz.org. The Seaford Head Project wants to assess and record archaeology of the Seaford Head before it's lost to coastal erosion. This is pretty neat that we're using, from an archaeological standpoint, using the drones for mapping.
0: That's right. And that area has apparently been subject to significant cliff collapses. So the, uh, you know, the heritage um, structures and all are in danger. And if you don't capture, record them in great detail, then, you know, you lose that uh, that asset.
1: And of course, this is um, in Sussex, England. Um, it features archaeology from multiple periods and a Bronze Age, now borough, an Iron Hill fort a Second World War-reinforced concrete structure. So you've got a lot of different layers to interpret and losing them to implied climate change.
0: Now, of course, they're using the drones to do site surveys. They're creating 3D models. And we've seen that done in other applications over the past few years uh, very successfully. An interesting aspect of this is that this Seaford Head Project intends to develop, well, they're calling it a template, something that can be replicated for other heritage agencies and landowners and community groups. The community aspect of this is also a a little bit unique in that they are working to involve the local community uh, in this effort, which I think is, uh, is a great thing. And uh, as they say, creating a template that others can use, you know, share the knowledge. Uh, this is a, a, a really uh, a strong uh, aspect of this.
1: Yeah. And using, being able to use that knowledge for other projects is is really important. And, you know, somewhere, sometimes somebody's got to do the work to figure out how to do it. And this is always, the nice thing about this is they're going forward and, and, and providing somebody else the ability to do it without maybe the um, ifs, buts, and whens that you would have gotten if you were starting from scratch. So pretty interesting. Again, another kind of project in the drone world where it's community based. We said that from the beginning. You know, drones for good, but it always seems to be a, there. Always seems to be a culture of collaboration um, in this industry.
0: Yeah, and that makes it even stronger even more meaningful, and something that people can relate to, which is which is great.
1: So test methods for drones put a critical rule for safe flights over people into practice. So, Max, you know, one of the favorite things you've always used to talk about was how they tested engines by firing frozen turkeys into them. <laughs> In this case, um, you're no dummy, but
0: evidently the story does use some dummies, huh? Yeah. It's an interesting uh, issue here um, in that, uh, you know, when looking at flights over people, uh, FAA rules for flights over people, uh, the agency has taken uh, the uh, the strategy of looking at kinetic energy, right? If a drone falls out of the sky, how much energy uh, it has, meaning what kind of injury it could impart on you, is a function of um, several things, but including the size of the drone, right? So if a 50 pound drone falls on your head, that's gonna have different consequences than if a five pound drone falls on your head. So it's based on kinetic energy. But there's kind of a rub. So kinetic energy uh, is uh, calculated, it's based on the, the object's mass and its speed or velocity, and so, The way you calculate kinetic energy, and this is nothing new, this is, you know, uh, it had been the formula for a long, long time, but uh, kinetic energy is equal to half of an object's mass times the velocity squared. Now, if you just take that formula and apply it to drones, you find that pretty much none of them... (laughs) are below the the threshold that the FAA is looking for. And that's because the formula, the calculation, makes some assumptions, uh, one of which is that the object is is rigid, is solid, but a drone is not. So, for example, if a drone falls on the road, it's going to break up into pieces. It's going to crack. Some pieces are going to fly off. And all of those things... Uh, dissipate energy, the kinetic energy, so the actual impact energy is is less than that. Now, where does all this take us? You can't just use the formula to calculate the kinetic energy. You need to measure it. You need to, in this case, we see the Virginia Tech Mid-Atlantic Aviation Partnership working with the Virginia Tech Department of Biomedical Engineering and Mechanics, and they are testing drone impacts on sensors, on dummy head sensors, in order to measure the actual kinetic energy of different drones.
1: This is important because, like Max said, it's a issue where the formula never doesn't even ever meet the FAA requirement. Um, And there are other parts of the impact that, besides the kinetic energy, that they're also observing, which is kind of like what happens when the blades hit you, you know, those kind of issues. So you're getting a more holistic view of what an impact is in compared to um, just a mathematical view. And, you know, math is really good, but sometimes realistic and launching a Turkey into a jet engine is much more realistic about a bird strike
0: than the math behind it. So where this leaves us is that Virginia Tech is positioned to work with companies, drone companies, who are applying uh, for flights over people in that they can design and conduct testing for individual models of aircraft and then using the the data that is determined, is measured, um, the kinetic energy then the applicant can submit that test data to the FAA. That'd be part of their declaration of compliance with the new rule. So again, if you want to fly over people, you have to remain below a certain energy level. And with this testing that they've been able to do, that can give you the data you then need uh, to take to the FAA.
1: And where did the Virginia Tech Mid-Atlantic aviation partnership come from well way 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 back in the distant past it was one of the faa test centers you know it we we haven't talked about them in years but they slowly have been maturing and finding their own niches so here's here's one of the faa test centers still providing a lot of good useful information So, okay, let's talk. We went from kinetic energy to heavy lift. This story is from newatlas.com. Two Italian heavy lift drones deliver 52 kilograms of cargo in Turin. And no, there wasn't one of them, wasn't the Shroud.
0: Oh, yeah. No, thank goodness. This is the Italian company Flying Basket. That's a great, great name. Um, they used uh, two of their FB-3 drones. Now, each of these two drones carried 27 kilograms, a little under 60 pounds of cargo, and they flew from a postal center to some sort of a destination uh, just under four kilometers away, and then they returned back to the, to the postal center, um, demonstrating their uh, ability to carry these heavy loads.
1: And Flying Basket partnered with Leonardo... Uh, and the Italian Postal Service. Leonardo, of course, is the um, Italian helicopter company. Um, the FB-3 drones were flown mainly over uh, the Certo di Lanzo River. Yeah, okay, I've mangled that. Who Anybody speaking fluent Italian can tell me.
0: I would have just said the river, but
1: Yeah, okay, well, you're smarter than I am. (laughs) One FB-3 carried its load internally. The other one was slung load, or um, underneath with the hook, which is kind of interesting that they did perform both ways.
0: Now, the FB-3 drones from Flying Basket have eight rotors, swappable batteries, that makes sense. They can each carry up to 100 kilograms of cargo. So this demonstration really didn't... uh, fully utilize the maximum capacity they weigh 80 kilograms empty and flying basket says they can uh, fly for between 50 15 and 50 minutes that's their flight time
1: so and the flying basket designs and develops unmanned multi-copters and vehicles designed to lift heavy payloads um flying around mountainous areas, islands, and other remote areas. And their services include load transportation, civil protection, cable stretching, monitoring, and multi-sensor analysis. So these octocopters are pretty impressive. Um, It'll be interesting to see if Leonardo goes forward
0: and and develops them into their own programs. Cable stretching. I always wondered how they did that. I, I think I'll maybe after this, David, get onto YouTube and see if I can find some cable stretching videos, maybe even some with drones. That would be uh, quite interesting. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean,
0: any, any
1: good video on the history of the Golden Gate Bridge has got a really good history of cable stretching. Yeah. Um, And, and, and it's a lot, it's a very time consuming process as you go back and forth, back and forth. But you you could see how a drone would simplify that process some. So let's talk some military news. The MQ-25 Stingray ends up deck handling tests aboard the USS a USS aircraft carrier, and this is from Flight Global. Flight um, Global. So the Stingray UAV has been tested on an aircraft carrier by Boeing and the U.S. Navy to assess deck handling characteristics. You got to move the aircraft around on a flight deck and it's an unmanned aircraft. So how do you do that? It sort of becomes a very large remote control car.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess. The MQ-25, David, that's for air-to-air refueling?
1: Air-to-air refueling. It's going to... Um, provide the air-to-air refueling capabilities that currently the f-18 super Hornet does um, returning the super hornets back to the squadrons usually the each squadron has two super hornets designated for air-to-air refueling so the mq25 is going to be that as a platform to provide air-to-air refueling now if you don't know um, what's important about air-to-air refueling is, Nine times out of 10, a fully loaded aircraft does not have all the fuel to go down a catapult. Most aircraft carrier aircraft take off and immediately hit the tanker to cap up to go fly their mission. So their their gross weight is at the maximum once they're in the air, not when they're going down the catapult. So when you have F-18s and you haven't had a designated refueler or tanker in the Navy for um, since pretty much the S-3 Viking had um, left the fleet, you lose some of your strike capability uh, because those jet fighters are becoming tankers and have to orbit the carrier. In this case, you're going to have an aircraft to supplement the fleet. So it's going to be very important um, technology, but Being able to move it on a pitching deck is equally as important as being able to fly it and maybe even harder than flying it in the normal day-to-day takeoff and landings.
0: Now, we have a video uh, that shows some of this. It's a promotional video, and it's only one minute long, so it's pretty quick, but we'll have it in the show notes. Uh, It's from Boeing, titled, MQ-25 completes first U.S. Navy carrier tests. Um, and it's like I say, it, it's a promotional. It's it, it's pretty produced um, video with maybe overly dramatic background music, but uh, you can at least see what this, what the MQ twenty five looks at or uh, looks like. Now the the Navy is uh, hoping for initial initial operational capability by twenty twenty four.
1: I say IOC. It's much easier. It is
0: IOC. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, according to the Flight Global article, they plan to, pur- they, the Navy, not Flight Global, plan to purchase as many as 76 of these aircraft.
1: Yeah, and we'll, we'll see how successful it becomes. I mean, 76 is a couple of squadrons. Now, what might be happening is, I mean, each squadron will have a, de- a debt or um, a detachment to an aircraft carrier. So um there're only maybe 2 or 3 or maybe 4 of them per aircraft carrier. Um so that's so it may seem like a small number but you're only keeping so many um in the fleet at, the, at a time. Um this goes for like E2Cs as well as the the Growlers those aircraft do not go in full strength, squadron strength, out to the aircraft carriers. So, I'm sure the the model those will be the model for the MQ-25 that a detachment will have up to maybe six aircraft. Um, so you've got a couple of them to be in service and a couple of them ready for uh, mission missions. So interesting. We'll we'll see what happens, um, but. Let's not forget the Air Force and the Air Force is working on the MQ Next original title, which is what's going to replace the MQ-9 Reaper, the aircraft that started us on this little road of podcasting about UASs. So the, the Predator has pretty much been phased out completely. Um, that leaves the MQ-9 Reaper, and the replacement is being
0: designed and set up. And they're, as you say, they're calling it the MQ-next, whatever number that ends up being. And uh, this is an article in the National Interest, and they're uh, speculating on what the MQ-next might look like, uh, and they suggest that it may not look like the mq 9 Uh, that it might be smaller, stealthier, more lethal, and it might even be something that operates in swarms. Uh, It would likely be networked, that makes sense, and could team with other aircraft, manned or unmanned aircraft. Which is
1: two really important aspects of the next generation of combat UASs is swarms and combat manning pairing where you you have a loyal, the loyal wingman program. The Air Force is definitely pushing towards that. Um, the Valkyrie is the current test aircraft. But ironically, there are so many UASs coming online. The, the reason why they're calling it the MQX is we don't know what number they're going to be up to. You know, it wasn't like... F-14, F-15, F-16, where, yeah, okay, next next one's going to be 17, 18, you know, or F-22. So it, it's interesting that um, they're saying next, but I have a feeling that the next aircraft will be a quantum leap like the Predator was, um, how it changed the whole view on what UASs can do in combat situations uncrewed aerial systems are been around forever in the, in the military but it definitely they're going to change in the next 5 to 10 years.
0: Yeah, and speaking of the the timeline, uh, the uh Reaper replacement is not expected anytime soon. In fact, they're looking at uh, it being up op- the replacement being operational in 2031. So, uh we're you know, like 9 years Nine years away, so that gives the Air Force plenty of time to decide what they want. It also gives a lot of time for the you know the uh, the technology to change and the situation to change. Uh, but they do have a lot of time. The Air Force recognizes that, and as they uh, as they say, this is from Lieutenant General David Nahome, the Air Force's Deputy Chief of Staff of the Air Force for Plans and Programs. He says, we have 300 platforms, meaning MQ-9 Reapers, to go into the middle 2030s so we have time to proceed smartly and look at different systems.
1: Also, as a small dovetail was, General Atomics, who makes the Reaper, just released their Mojave, which is based on the MQ-9, but is a multi-mission Aircraft that's designed for short field takeoffs and special operations, which will further the, the um, Gray Eagle Reaper family of aircraft, I'm sure, into the 2030s, if, if not beyond. So a quality platform, the Predator and the Reaper definitely have been around. They've set the standard for uncrewed aircraft, And they caused us to create this show. So if it wasn't for them and hellfires, we never would have started this show. Likely not. So Flying High, the FAA funds NMC's high school drone education program. This is from the recordeagle.com. Northwest Michigan College received a grant of
0: $90,000 from the FAA. And they're going to use that money to train forty high school teachers on the fundam- on the fundamentals of uh, UAS. And besides the training, each teacher will receive a multi rotor drone that they can use to pass this knowledge on to their own students. That's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, it's a good way to bring up the next generation. I got to look into how I can get a grant for like that for the museum. Congress appropriated. Five million to the FAA to grant projects like this. The grant builds on NMC's selection in 2020 as the under the U.S. UAS Collegiate Training Program. They offer extensive training. You can earn a degree, complete a certificate program, or just get specialized training.
0: And what they're looking to do is provide a curriculum that they call it's a total solution to prepare people to enter into the UAS industry. And it is or it can be, if that's what you want to do, it can be an associate degree program. They offer an associate of applied science degree in engineering technology with UAS specialization. And they also offer a, a simpler UAS certificate program. So Northwestern Michigan College has been doing drone training for quite some time and again offering a, a degree program and other programs so it's pretty cool that they're now taking that capability along with the grant from the FAA and passing that knowledge down to high school teachers I think that's great
1: so let's talk we talked we, we talked about the Air Force we talked about the Navy let's talk about Harassment of Navy destroyers by a mysterious drone swarms off California for weeks. This is from one of my favorite websites, TheDrive. dot com. <laughs> you always say uh, that. I well, I, I. It's true. I just love the dr- the dot com. So this occurred in twenty nineteen, but due to a Freedom of Information Act, um, we've gotten some information about harassing swarms off the coast of California.
0: And this apparently wasn't just a single sighting; it was many sightings that occurred throughout the month of July in 2019, and the, uh, the the Navy even activated drone countermeasures because of what they saw going on around them. Now, David, this this is different than the uh, you know the UFO, the uh, the Tic Tac. Uh, encounters absolutely. I this yeah. is this is. I, there's no mention of.
1: I mean, the term they use is swarm in this article, not not specific aerial phenomena, but swarm. So there were multiple drones. In one event, at least three ships observed the multiple drones, and the Paul Hamilton abruptly made changes in course and direction. To and the drones were following them, so it's interesting, and and the fact that the navy is admitting that they used counter drone technology, so it's different than the aerial phenomena or UFOs that you see on all the videos of the the infamous Tic Tac. This is a
0: completely different event, and I wonder what led them to use the term drones to describe these instead of. You know, UFO or whatever the military is using for that for that term. I mean, do you know why? Why did they think these were drones?
1: I think basically they identify if they were using drone countermeasures. I think they identified them as a swarm of drones. I, I think th- they clearly were able to be identified, though not maybe not the operator, etc. And UFOs aren't affected by drone anti-drone systems. So it's definitely an interesting story. I mean, the article is highly redacted. So the Navy isn't telling the whole story. um, But it is an interesting story that, you know, somebody has drone technology and and was flying it around the Navy ships.
0: Boy, I don't know what's going on out there, David. (laughs) Uh, a lot of activity off the coast of California.
1: Cue the uh, Twilight Zone music, right? Really? Well, Max, we got a video of the week. This was cool. First we had a bowling alley, then we had a movie theater. Now we have a baseball workout at a baseball stadium. It's pretty awesome.
0: And this is produced by the uh, the same uh, group, Jaybird Bird Films, that has done – those that you mentioned, uh, David, and as well as some other really impressive videos like that. Now you've probably seen them, but if not, these are uh, videos that are shot by a drone. It's sort of a, a one take kind of a drone fly by, fly through, fly around, interacting with. Well, it, it, the drone doesn't interact, but it captures the interactions of the of the the people that it's flying by and all that, and it's. Uh, uh, it, it, they're very compelling. I mean, you can't you can't not watch them. Yeah, actually, yes. Uh, you know, and now that
1: you've gotten used to the first one was was it the movie theater? I guess. The first I think.
0: Uh, yeah, that was the first one. I think that was the first one I saw. Followed, uh, yeah, followed by the bowling alley. I'm not sure now. No, it was the bowling alley
1: followed by followed by the theater.
0: They are
1: sort of staged. I mean, in this case, you'll see a bunch of pictures lining up and the pictures pitched as the drone flies by. So, But that being said, it is still phenomenal photography and the editing is amazing to make it look like one giant flight in and out of the stadium and in the locker rooms, etc. So definitely take some time. Um, and watch this because these videos just keep getting better and better and so interesting so uh, definitely a video to watch to hold you over for two weeks
0: that's right and we want to thank you for listening not only to this episode of the UAV Digest but for our uh, loyal listeners who've been listening all year long we really appreciate that and you can find us of course at the UAVDigest.com
1: And you can find us on our Slack listener team, and you do that by sending us an email to feedback at the uavdigest.com. You can listen to us on any of your podcatchers. Also, please send us stories that you might want us to discuss. We're always looking forward to hearing from you guys. Again, the, the email is feedback at the UAV Digest. So I guess with that, I'm going to say, Happy New Year. Uh, We look forward to listening to you.
0: And Max, episode 400's coming up. (laughs) Who'd have thought? Who would have thought? Yep, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you in two weeks. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and
1: thanks for listening.